0: Today's episode of Just Right Book is presented by Africaville by Jeffrey Colvin. Now available wherever books are sold.
1: Uh, you know, part of its talent, part of its drive. Uh, I've learned that people uh, can be uh, successful uh, on their own terms at, at any level of you know external mm-hmm. success, and. And I think that's to be respected.
2: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative, and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Steve Schwarzman, with his co-founder Pete Peterson, built Blackstone into the largest private equity firm in the world, with over a half a trillion dollars under management. Yet at the beginning, that success did not seem inevitable. In 1985, they sent out almost 500 letters to potential investors and received two responses. And then two years later, they closed an $800 million fund, and they closed it on the eve of the largest one-day percentage drop in stock market history. Along the way, Steve Schwarzman became one of the most sought-after advisors to businesses, government, and leaders around the world – as well as an incredibly active philanthropist in China, England, and the United States. Steve is now chairman and CEO of Blackstone and joins us here in New York City. He has written his new book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Mr. Schwartzman shares his story with all its failures, successes, and lessons that got him to this point. Steve, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Well, thanks. It's great to be here this morning.
2: Uh, So I had a lot of fun reading this book, and we could take a lot of different threads in talking about it. But let's start with – so you and Pete Peterson, who had been secretary of the commerce, CEO of Lehman, you had been a meteoric star at Lehman – you sell Lehman to uh, Shearson or to American Express at that point, right? That's right. And you decided to start your own firm. So what did you and Pete imagine that firm would be when you started? What What, what was in your head then?
1: Well, we had uh, a vision that we'd do three things. Uh, the first is uh, we, we'd be uh, what I guess today you would say is an M&A boutique. Mm -hmm. We would give financial advice for mergers and other corporate transactions uh, as as the first thing we did. That's what we were doing at Lehman. We knew how to do that. The second thing we would do uh, would be to go into what's now called the private equity business. Back Mm -hmm. then, it was called the LBO uh, business. And the third thing we would do uh, would be to um, figure out what other business lines we could go into in finance. Uh, that could be huge successes for uh, investors uh, and for the for for Blackstone as well. We called them affiliates, wh- where we saw something that was uh, an anomaly. Uh, for example, real estate being totally depressed, go into that business with a great person, uh, someone who was a ten on a scale of ten, mm. uh, and and build that business. So we just didn't do advisory work, and private equity. And we didn't know what those third businesses would be because it depends, you know, what was happening in You'd the world. You'd be opportunistic. Right, we would be opportunistic. And and when we started the firm, we wrote that business plan and, uh, in effect, sent it to everyone we knew and said, hi, it's, it's Pete and Steve, we're going into business. Here are the three things we're going to be doing. And uh, ironically, Uh, we're we're still executing the same business plan. Uh, And uh, we've just, you know, been uh, quite successful picking, you know, the new uh, things to do. uh, And they've grown into enormous uh, scale, uh, but but also been great for customers, because all that matters is that you're doing something great for... for, Yeah, at uh, the end of the day, even me
2: as a bookstore... Right. It's right. gotta be it's always gotta be about the customer. the customer. Right. So one of the things that you talk about um early in the book is Drew Faust, who had been the president of Harvard, had come to see you in two thousand and ten. And when she retired in two thousand and eighteen, she sent you her notes from uh the, the conversation she had had with you. And one of the notes was that you believed that leaders are made, not born. And I want to talk about that a little bit, because when I when I read about your childhood, and it, so you you talk about being in the lawn business with your twin brothers, where right away you were taking a half cut. They were doing the lawns, and you were getting the business, right?
0: That's right. You
2: were selling telephone books or something. You were you were at nine or ten years old already thinking business. So I want to challenge you that you actually think that leaders are made as opposed to they come with a certain set of 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 a temperament or a bent and then they learn.
1: Yeah, it's really uh, a tiny bit different. Uh, Entrepreneurs are born. uh, That desire to keep doing new things, taking risk, uh, that I think is pretty innate. Okay. But but managing, uh, uh, whether it's large enterprises or smaller types of things, that's a learned behavior. Mm. uh, Because, um, you know, I I learned even though I was really good at a lot of things when you put me in charge of things – um, that, that's a, that's a different skill because you, you're dealing with people. Um, people are complicated. Uh, organizations are complicated. Uh, you can see exactly how to fix something um, uh, that isn't working well. But how do you convince the people in the organization to to, yeah. to, to change their behavior? How fast can you introduce change um, to a situation? Uh, even though you know where you want to end up, if you introduce change too quickly, you have all these people quit. Then you can't even yeah. do what you're doing. So, so what, what, I, what I've learned in life uh, is that that implementation element of things is learned. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, nobody's born as a CEO. You know, you just don't come out like that. Well, you
2: do think they're born as entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, I think, I think uh, there's something intuitive about that. People who, um, you know, want to be successful or willing to do new things, take, you know, the sort of, um, um, you know, uh, skepticism of other people, not let it bother them. Yeah. Th- that's an innate uh, kind of uh, quality. Uh, but running things, Yep. And running them well, um that's that's learned. And and so, you know, when, when Drew uh just had her job uh, you know, being president of Harvard, you know, she came in to see me for a few different reasons, but she asked about that because this was new for so, her. Yeah, H,
2: uh, had, Harvard's know, paying did, attention to this.
1: Right. Do I have any advice for that? I said, yeah, lots, because uh interestingly, um uh the the person who um uh, had just become the president of Yale in the early 90s. Rick Levin, yeah. uh, by accident, was scheduled to see me uh, for fund solicitation on his second day at, at work as president of Yale. And I said, what in the world are you doing here seeing me? <laughs> he, he said, well, they scheduled me. I said, well, you can see me anytime. Uh, you know, th- this is not a good use of your time. Uh yeah. he said, why is that? I, I said, because you, you should be uh at school, uh you know, sort of dealing with all the faculty and getting them and, and Rick and I, did
2: a good job with that. So so so
1: I I said, what, what 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 do you want to achieve? And and he said, well, we've got big deficits, uh and I, I've gotta you know get rid of the deficit. I said, how big is your deficit? He's, as I remember it, it was somewhere between 12 and $14 million a year. And, and I, I said, how uh, big is your endowment? He said, it's like $4.7 I said, so, so Rick, I said, every day mm. you will make or lose more money with your endowment than your entire operating losses for year.
2: Was Dave Swenson at the endowment fund yet?
1: He, I think, had just just joined. Just started. And I said, so so what are you planning on doing? He said, well, I'm going to reduce all these numbers of courses and we're going to have to have cuts and people, uh, you know, in certain functions will have to leave. I I said, well, I said, everybody's going to hate you if you do that. Uh, And he said, well, it has to be done. I I said, well… I said, the problem you have actually isn't as severe uh, as, as you think, given the size of what you make and l- l- lose every day, which is not under your control. So I, I said, why don't you like never see me again, go back to Yale and um, uh, spend the next nine months um, having breakfast, lunch and dinner uh, with every faculty member. Hmm. Uh, and. You know, uh, develop terrific personal relationships with everyone. Let them know you care about what they're doing. And nine months, nine months later, tell them you've got a financial problem uh, at the university, and you'll and
0: have a relationship. I,
1: I said, I said, people will leap up mm. to help you solve it, yeah. rather than resist what you want to do. So he called me a year later. <laughs> he said, "Geez." That that worked. That was
2: good. It, that, that
1: worked out <laughs> just the way you said. Uh, so so we 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 ended up with a terrific uh, relationship, and I tried to help him. And I said, Rick, this isn't so hard, uh, but it's hard if you've never been the president of something. Mm, right. Uh, and I said, it's easier for me because I screwed up uh, a whole bunch of things, uh, not knowing how to do things like this. So what I'm doing is sharing uh, what I know. Uh, and he turned out to be um, what, you know finest, pr- finest um, yeah. uh, president of a university during the the time that he was and doing he was it twenty years. Yeah, I mean he did a great job uh, at Yale. But what was interesting, of course, is that Rick learned uh, yeah. how to do that, and I think that's why Drew was uh, was was seeing me. But it's it's that way in
0: almost every field. From Amistad Books comes Africaville by Jeffrey Colvin stunning debut inspired by the true history of a settlement in Halifax, Nova Scotia, whose black population, largely the descendants of slaves from the American South and the Caribbean, carved out a community against the harsh maritime landscape and against bigotry and racism. Africaville by Jeffrey Colvin chronicles the lives of three generations of the Sebalt family, whose lives unfold against the tumultuous events of the 20th century, from the Great Depression of the 1930s through the social protest of the 1960s to the economic upheavals in the 1980s. As it explores notions of identity, passing, cross-racial relationships, the importance of place, and the meaning of home, Africaville tells the larger story of the Black experience in parts of Canada and the United States. Africaville by Jeffrey Colvin is available now wherever books are sold.
2: So, Steve, I want to I want to go on to your failures because you do a very endearing job um, of talking about them. But I want to make sure we finish up this point because I thought it was a really interesting, useful one. And that is the distinction between being born with the chops to be an entrepreneur because everybody wants to do a startup today, right? And, it, you know, what I, one of the takeaways I had from the book is think twice – about what that what those entrepreneurial chops look like, as opposed to being interested in business and wanting to learn to be good at that, leading in a company that exists and being prepared to learn
1: yeah, these are slightly different things uh, in yeah. other words, if if you really go out on your own um, uh, in in an entrepreneurial experience um it's it's tough. Um, on a number of levels. It, it's tough emotionally uh, because anybody who goes out to start something on their own, of course, believes it's going to be successful. Uh, and and they believe that they've got whatever it takes uh, to make that happen, only to find out typically uh, that you don't. Yeah. Uh, because um, there are so many different functions yeah. that, that have to be able to to, to be done and most of them you've never done in your life. So so this is like, uh, in a way, uh, t- trying to fix an airplane engine when you're up in the air. Yeah. Uh, who's oh, gonna, I
0: like that. Let's right. use that.
1: Who's going to climb out on that wing
0: uh, <laughs> right. fix and not get engine.
1: blown off and, and, right. and not drop apart uh, while, while you know, you're know you at full speed? Uh, and, and so, um, you know, it, it takes a certain kind of person to deal with that and also – the number of mistakes you make because you haven't seen situations before and and so you're fixing mistakes as you're trying to do something positive uh, you know, and um, you typically don't get the best people in the world when you start Starts. something because they're already working someplace and they're being paid a yeah. lot more and and so you're dealing with people who um, are of mixed capability uh, you've got customers who 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 basically if you're lucky enough to get customers, you know, they, they, they don't much care that you've gone into business. Only you care. Yeah, uh, and They others, just want what they want. Right. But but they already are pretty happy uh, getting satisfied somewhere, somewhere else. else. So so you have to convince them that they aren't happy. Uh, and, and people uh, as a group, human beings, are are reluctant to change things. They say they are uh, yeah. glad to change. They actually don't like changing much. Uh, and and so you're taking on an enormous number yeah. of issues. And, and so what it takes to make it through that is you have to be um, psychologically very resilient and strong. You have to take setbacks and beatings. Yeah. Uh, you have to never get tired. It's like and when I was young, we had what was called the Joe Palooka doll. You, you yeah, it was an inflatable thing, right and you up. you hit it, and it went down, and it comes up. That's yeah. you, uh, and and you have to be a leader at the same time, uh, and deal with the reality that maybe you don't have enough money uh, to to get to the finish line. Yeah, uh, and and so it's a it's a juggling game, uh, and and you you have to. Keep your own confidence and the confidence of those you've attracted and and customers. That is a lot different than working in a much more secure uh, environment.
2: So, talk about confidence. I I was I I think I'd have to use the word taken aback by a couple of instances of your chutzpah. So. I think about and this is in no particular order. I think about uh, DLJ, your first job out of Harvard Business School. They offer you ten thousand dollars, which was the good going rate, but you turned it down unless they gave you ten thousand five. You challenge your first Harvard professor right in front of the class, like I think within the first ten minutes of the class, you then go to see the Dean of Harvard Business School and tell. Him, that the whole curriculum was useless and ineffective. So, where, what, what was it that made you okay with being the nonconformist who raises their hand? And what made you think you were right about that stuff?
1: Well, I I never felt I was a nonconformist because um, I'm
2: I'm saying because you're the one making the noise.
1: Well, it's, I, I don't view it as noise. I, I view it as informing people mm-hmm. uh, of things that they should know uh, that are true. Uh, and they just may not know see it them. <laughs> they, they, they may not know it because they, they haven't been exposed to, to the same thing. So, you know, when I went to see um, the, the dean at uh, Harvard Business School, it, it's because I was a student and he wasn't. And so I got to see uh, at that point in history it was a real low for Harvard Business School. Um, the middle of the Vietnam, Vietnam War. War, business was very unpopular. The smart kids were going to law schools and medical schools, not business schools. The way business schools have become much more um, in in demand now. And and so he 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 must not have known that the experience in the classroom uh, was was really. Um, pretty terrible, except for some of the great older professors who, who were terrific. Yeah. But, but for the most part, you were taught by, by younger people who had had one, two, or three years experience. They weren't that much older than you. Uh, the curriculum uh, wasn't modern. Uh, it was uh, uh, outmoded. Uh, the quality of the students was so dramatically below uh, what I was used to, uh, at Yale and even in my high school yeah. uh, that I was shocked. You were
2: at Abington?
1: Yeah, uh, suburban Philadelphia. And, and you know, administratively, they had all kinds of strange things that were suboptimal. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just stopped in to tell him about all those things. But
2: you don't doubt that that takes a certain confidence to do that. An average mm-hmm. student starting school might might think what you're thinking. But would they necessarily feel sturdy enough to go in and talk to the dean?
1: Uh, Probably not. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I do these things because I just want things to be better. Yeah. Uh, And so I, I I don't have any sense I'm at any personal risk because all I'm trying to do is help somebody who's senior to me do their job better. Yeah. So that, you know, as the user of the service, if you will, you know, it's better for everyone. And
2: what'd you learn from that meeting? Because that was sort of an interesting exchange that informed you.
1: Yeah, this was one of the first times in my life I ever met someone who didn't want to improve. Mm. Uh, And and, almost every situation I've ever been in, whether it was in you know, sort of junior high school telling the principal how we should make some changes, which he made. Or getting uh,
2: Anthony and the Imperials uh, to sing right, Tears on My Pillow. Right. Uh,
1: <laughs> that, that Every time I, you know, when I was in the Army, uh, uh, you know, went to the colonel uh, because he said, when when we got to basic training, if you ever see anything really wrong here, just come to me and I'll fix it. And, and so in, in that case, I did... Um, that was very unpopular with all the people between me and the colonel. Yeah. but but he fixed them right away. So, my experience in life is if you go to somebody who's in charge of something, um they want to be better. they want to be better. If they're and, any good, right. And that's why they're in that position. Um, this was the first time I met somebody who basically just dismissed me Shut out you of down. hand and and uh, i I knew uh, at that point that. That as a result of of the way he was approaching his job, that that Harvard Business School was going to go from number one in the country at that time, nineteen seventy one, to something much much lower, and it ended up going. And it took it like academic institutions take about twenty years to really mess up, uh, uh, and you know I think Harvard got down to like number six. Really, uh, and. That in no way surprised me because the things I was pointing out uh, as a student were real problems. I didn't invent them. And the fact that he didn't want to address any of them uh, meant they would just be discovered uh, by other people along the way. way. And then the school would get uh, more negatively um, viewed. Uh, Interestingly, they they, uh, hired a dean – Uh, Kim Kim Clark, uh, uh, I guess it was 1991 or 2, and, you know, he called me up uh, and um, said, you know, I heard that you think, you know, we could do a lot better and we're not doing well now. What do you think we should do? Mm -hmm. And I went on, you know, whatever the visiting committee was at at Harvard and, you know, they fought their way back to being number one or two. It it took another 10 years. And he was a learning machine. Yeah. And... So so I, I never believe when I tell people things, even if it's not what other people would say. Uh, I, I just think I'm being helpful.
2: Because you know where you're coming from. Yeah.
1: Well, it. I can explain uh, n- not an opinion. Uh, I, I always give plenty of examples of, of why I believe what I believe. And and if you have a different point of view, you should just put it on the table. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm wrong. Um because I've experienced it and I can explain it. And, and you know, um, I was at an event yesterday with a number of CEOs, I was on a panel and I was being interviewed by a very well-known uh, journalist, Andrew Sorkin. Uh, and he said, Steve, you know, you're known for speaking out a bunch and you don't seem to be concerned about that and being attacked or something. Yeah. I, I said, well, I said, Andrew, I, I just try and tell people what I think the reality is, and why, yeah. and if 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 I'm wrong, people should, should speak up should speak up and tell me i'm I'm glad you'll to learn change. from that, yeah, exactly uh,
2: so one of the one of the lessons that I thought was interesting in the book, so, as we talked in the introduction, you and Pete Peterson were not unknown entities when you started uh, right. Blackstone, and yet you sent out these five hundred letters and um, nobody got back to you, and you learned you thought going to your friends was the right way to get going and wh- wh- what did you learn
1: well, you learned a lot of things uh first i i i I learned that I mistook uh, uh pete and my capability uh in 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 an area uh that was well known um for for the fact that people would just continue to do business with us, when when we no longer had the imprimatur mm. uh, of of Lehman uh, as a name, uh, that that just by leaving a place uh, as the same two you're humans, you're somebody else. You're someone else in their yeah. their their, their uh, eyes, and I, I, it never crossed my mind <laughs> that, that 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 would happen, uh, and because. Be, just because it, how could it happen you were big dogs right i mean and you know all of a sudden how could you be like a small dog uh if you were a big dog but right? you were a startup it, it, now you, you were right. a startup yes but i didn't know that yeah. that, that mattered right. uh, and and if i did i probably wouldn't have done it uh but but that that was shocking uh to me and i i didn't realize that at that point there were no other Um, M and A boutiques that existed. That was now. Now they're all over the place. But we were like the first one. Has
2: KKR started yet? Yes, they
1: started in 1976. Mm -hmm. We started in uh, uh, 1985. Uh, But they were just a single product um, uh, uh, business. They were. They were in the buyout business. Yeah, they were doing LBOs. Right, right. and we were doing advice first. Uh, uh, So, so um, I, I, it, it never struck me. That the people wouldn't wouldn't hire the same people they were used to working with. What what I also learned is when you start something new, and when we started raising money for the buyout fund, which which was our second uh, business, that that you go to your friends first. Um, that's what most entrepreneurs do. That's Seems the, safer. The safer, easy they like sale. You. They like you. What happens is that you actually don't know what you're doing Mm. on that first sales call, if you will. And those people, besides being friends or friendly, they they also have their own staffs. They also have their own expertise. And they are looking at you, not as the person you used to be, but just for the limited function that you're selling. And, And because you've never sold that product before or done that work, they're highly skeptical the way anybody would be. Mm -hmm.
2: And you haven't cut your teeth yet.
1: Right. And they ask you questions and you actually haven't thought about what some of those answers could Mm -hmm. be. So you're half stumbling around and basically they do what any rational person would do. They will turn you down. Now, if you went to that same person who basically likes you as your 25th call, Yeah when you've already learned all the things you should have learned, right. they probably will give you a commitment. If you go back to them again, they, they just don't have the interest, right? Yeah. So you so
2: squander the you relationship.
1: What you do is you, you trash all your best relationships. Yes. And start going to strangers. Right. Start going to strangers. You've made your lives so much more difficult and virtually Everyone does the exact same thing. So if you get nothing else out of this book, yeah. right, no matter okay. what you're trying don't to do Don't go to your life, friends first. I, don't, don't do that first yeah. be, because you've you got to try out whatever you're doing on people who, who, who don't know you well. And, and you've got to, like, learn all the issues um, that, that are necessary to be able to engender confidence in somebody.
2: Yeah. So one of the one of the moments that I thought was a low point, it, lest anybody think you're infallible, is tell us the story. So in 1987, you and Pete decide, okay, you've done the advisory work. We're going to go out and raise some capital, and because you don't believe in doing anything small, your goal is to raise a billion dollars, which is unheard of. Right? This is 1987, and again. It's not going the way you figured. Nine months go by, you've raised like two tranches that are giving you fifty million. Tell us the story of you and Pete in the rain going to MIT.
1: Yeah, this was
2: this was a low point. <laughs>
1: this, we had we had a lot of low points. Every, every person who who someone else would think is successful uh, has had so many low points there's a delusion that
2: but there's something sort of pathetic about this this yeah, MIT this, yeah, this
1: and everybody has these things <laughs> right. uh, it's they're terrible and this was uh, you know we had an appointment I made an appointment up at MIT for their endowment to, to make one of our pitches you know for our private for equity money. fund and it was a uh, Friday afternoon around three o'clock um, which isn't so wonderful in the first place, but, you know, up in Boston because you got to travel there and it's bad for your weekend. Uh, And, you know, we went went up and, you know, went to the door, uh, which was one of those, you know, sort of wood on the bottom, old-fashioned building with, you know, sort of the frosted glass so you can't Mm -hmm. see in it with the black writing. Uh, oh yeah, on the frosted glass. I always think thinking
2: private detectives mm-hmm. having those yes, doors, exactly. but I guess they had yeah, them. At it looked MIT. like L.A. Confidential. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, and and you know, we're, I was knocking on the door, and nobody came to the door. And so what you do is you just uh, knock harder, and you assume they weren't hearing you. And this went on for a while. It, it was pretty clear nobody was answering the door, and uh, you know, somebody walked by, said he was the janitor, and that he had seen the people leave um, earlier, uh, 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 like a half an hour ago, and I had confirmed the appointment at three o'clock the yeah. day before. So how could they leave? I mean, we flew up just to see them. So you know, my partner, who was twenty-one years older than me, very which distinct... was only
2: sixty at the time, yeah, right. but it I seemed mean... <laughs> old. <laughs> See, when you said he was sixty at the time, I, and you had referred to him as older, I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> that's not
1: that old. <laughs> well, now I'm a lot older than that, but yeah. still, it seemed old. And he was very, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, orderly, responsible, dignified uh, person. And and so he's watching me knocking away, uh, and then the other guy's saying they're not here, and uh, you know, this 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 was not so good. So so. You know, obviously we went we, went out for how we came, and you know, uh, to go back to New York, and it was pouring with rain, and and um, and and we were at the the administration building at uh, MIT, where where they also teach classes, and there was like huge numbers of people there, and everybody's looking to see you know, they don't want to get wet. And yeah. We didn't have a raincoat. We didn't have an umbrella. umbrella. And, you know, I sort of waited around 20 minutes for the for the rain to like lessen up because I want to get a taxi. It didn't. And so, you know, we needed to get back to New York. I just went out in the rain and I'm looking for taxis and everybody's looking for taxis and you know, we all know that if you live someplace, you know where a taxi you know might the, be. You know the system, right? Well, I didn't know any system, and so by the time wherever I was standing, there were absolutely no taxis. Yeah, and you know, I was soaked, and uh, after about ten minutes of stumbling around looking for taxis, I realized there there were going to be no taxis that were available. So I, it was a lot of traffic because it was around rush hour. Uh, so so i i realized the only way i could get out of this mess uh, was to try and take some money and see if somebody would let me into their cab drop them off wherever they were going and then keep the cab and Still go making to the airport so make a deal steve <laughs> right so so i took 20 bucks which was a lot in 1987 uh, and uh, you know sort of would be knocking on the windows of... Uh,
2: to try to bribe the to cab tra- driver. To try
1: and bribe... Not the cab <laughs> driver. I had it Oh, the,
2: the people I, in the cab. Right. I had to bribe oh, the right.
1: people in the cab... And you know, so I did a few of those. The people looked at me like I was completely insane. I was soaking wet and I'm holding up like this twenty dollar <laughs> bill. And they what do they want a wet person in with them? So I realized I did you have
2: a, to like ultimately raise it to thirty yeah, or something? I, I had
1: I had increase it, you know, to thirty <laughs> and we got some nice person uh you know, to let us in and, and Pete was watching this obviously from you know those steps at MIT were probably about twenty-five steps you know, going up, and you know he sort of walked down, and you know just the rain <laughs> was pelting him, and he became soaked. And we—it's
2: interesting we, that your we, partnership survived that instant. <laughs> he
1: he just—I mean—I felt so so bad uh, for both of us, and and um, you but know, but
2: you did go on to raise eight hundred million dollars. Eight fifty. Eight
1: fifty. Uh, eight fifty. Uh, so. And then I got another hundred from one of those investors a year later uh from it that's yeah, right, yeah, so so basically, we set out to raise a billion, which was the third biggest in the world, by far the biggest first time fund ever ever raised. and we got to like nine fifty. Uh, that was pretty good for two people who had never made an investment before.
2: Yeah, th- that was one of the <laughs> things that I hadn't realized. So you you were both very experienced in terms of M&A advisory work, but in fact hadn't done an LBO, had not done an ac- a, a real acquisition.
1: Right. I mean, I, I had advised the people yeah. who were doing well, that work. Well, it's a
2: little work. different, Steve, yeah. right? <laughs> well, it's, it's,
1: it's different. Uh, you know. Yes, but it's not like advising two giant companies merging. This was, I was advising, uh, you know, people like at Forceman Little and KKR who were doing this exact type of work. So I I had seen the deals set up, but um, I'd never done one myself. So I didn't, once again, believe that that was any inhibition on being successful. Um, And the idea that other people thought it would be um, was um, somewhat shocking. A surprise to you. <laughs> a surprise to me.
2: <laughs> so we've been uh, – we're talking with uh, Steve Schwarzman, uh, and his new book is called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Steve, one of the things as a small business owner uh, that – you know, one of the things that you talk about is the amount of effort it takes to run a small business is not that much – uh greater than it takes to run a big business. And therefore your strategy has always been to go for the bigger business. What do you think is the role of small businesses, um in in the country? Because <clears throat> a small business owner, I obviously think they're important, but I I totally buy into your theory.
1: Yeah, my my, my dad, uh and my grandfather had a small business. They made it into a little bigger business, but it's just in one location. Mm-hmm. So I, I grew up in, with that culture. yeah, and, um, uh, and but for some accidents, I probably would have ended up in it. Um, so, so I think it's really important, and it's important because it gives people control uh, of their lives. Uh, they they get to make their own uh, decisions. Uh, people don't tell them what to do. If if you're an owner of a small mm-hmm. business, uh, you 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 have both the the the, the thrill uh, of doing things the right way, and and also the responsibility if you mess it up. Uh, and, and so uh, it's really all about you and your judgment uh, and what you want to offer uh, to somebody as a as a customer, and how you decide to treat the people. Uh, who work for you, and and that unit, uh, you know, ten people or less, um, that's like that's like the heart and soul uh, mm-hmm. of, of of a Western democracy, uh, and um, you know that's an that's a, a coherent uh, economic organizational unit, uh, and it gives everybody a chance uh, to to be in charge.
2: You know, and one of the things that I thought about is, so, uh, what it takes, to, when you and Pete Peterson started BlackRock, you came up with a set Black of principles. Uh, oh, geez. We
1: also started BlackRock. I
2: know you did start BlackRock. But when you started Blackstone, you had an early failure. Uh, one of your, I think it was your third investment yep. in Edgecomb.
1: Edgecomb Steel.
2: And tell us quickly what happened there and how it changed what you, how you and Pete decided to do investments and how you managed to scale that notion.
1: Yeah. And this was like a complete disaster uh, made by me. Uh, You know, we had no processes because we'd never done investments before. And we hired uh, some some uh, people to work with us. You uh, had a new partner, uh, right? Yeah, we brought in a new partner <clears throat> who I had never worked with before, and um, uh, he had an idea to buy a company. It happened to be named Edgecomb Steel, which was in the steel distribution business, and you know we had an exclusive to buy it for somewhere around three hundred and sixty million dollars, I think, and. Um, So usually when you get an exclusive to buy something, if the analysis pans out, it's a good thing. Um, And he he had worked with this company before um, uh, and thought it was good. And he he just came to my desk and told me about it. Uh, I I can't believe we were so primitive. Uh, And um, so I thought it was sort of interesting. And then somebody else at the firm. And you
2: wanted him to feel like he mattered at the firm. Right. Was that a piece of it?
1: That that, that was a piece of it in the decision, Uh, but uh, when he came in the first time, it was just like a A you know just something a deal, and uh, so so you know we talked about it and didn't make a decision, Uh, and then one of the other partners at the firm we only had like six partners or five partners heard that this was going on, so he came to my office. And and sat down in the same chair uh, the other guy had been in, uh, and and he said, I think this is a disaster uh, uh, that you're thinking about doing uh, because this company's just making inventory profits because steel's going up, and when steel goes down, they'll lose a fortune. So we're paying for like nothing, uh, and it's a bad. It'll business. evaporate. It, it'll all evaporate, and so I didn't know what to do. So so I was like a you know 38 year old kid uh you know and so i called them both in so i made pretend i was like king solomon and they just sat in the two chairs and each one laid out their pitch. wares uh they made their pitch and and um I, I picked the first one uh who who knew the company uh as it turned out the other partner was completely right and mm-hmm. within so
2: much for the king solomon of, stuff
1: yes i realized that uh i was a failure uh Giving myself a crown uh, and sitting in a throne, uh, and mm-hmm. and that my basic training and instincts weren't good enough to be in that kind of I'm a genius role, uh, and I, I realized that if I stayed in that position, uh, we would fail uh, as a company, and that you know I, I looked for a, a mechanism to to not to not fail, if you will, and I realized that you know, we did everything wrong. Nobody told me. I figured that out. Uh, and I looked at everything we did and, and realized it was all wrong, that that you, you can't rely on somebody talking to you because in finance and in most areas, the people making a presentation completely believe in something mm-hmm. and they believe their job isn't the truth. It's to it's convince to you it. to do it, to yeah. authorize it. So, so I, I realized, first of all, we needed something in writing that that you could actually spend time thinking about, not just reacting to somebody talking. And you also need uh, to, to have the, the people who prepare that have a list of what we call risk factors, things that could blow us up and, and mm-hmm. make us fail, and, and so you could debate those. I, I then realized that we should take all the partners at the firm, because it was small, and everybody should get in a room. They should all get the same document. And we should all debate those risk factors. And
2: each person and, express an opinion. And,
1: and each person has to talk. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you go to a class uh, and there are a few people who are the talkers and everybody watches them. I wanted to make sure that everybody could could put their intellectual wares on the table because each person we hired was smart and And their job was not to watch another smart person conduct a meeting. Uh, Nobody could be a visitor or or a paid audience. Everybody was a principal. Everybody had to protect the business. So so that mechanism um, of everybody around a table talking, things in writing – debating the outcome of the different risks involved with the deal because i never wanted to lose money we lost 100 percent of our money i i'd never had an experience yeah. like that in my life i had i had people yelling at me uh you know who gave us money i'd never been yelled at uh, in my life i was raised in a family where no one ever raised their voice I, I thought that was normal. now that I when I got older, I realized, you, realize this, not, n- you were lucky. I was lucky. It's just the way my family uh, was, but it um, makes me very sensitive mm-hmm. uh, to voices and sound, hmm. uh, uh, which is a real competitive advantage, but that's a different thing. so 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 I, I just wanted to design a system where we all protected yeah. uh, the business and never lost money again, so it was interesting. We had an earnings call yesterday uh, and um, we did some research and we realized that, that on 700 uh, uh, companies and, and real estate uh, deals that we've done in the last 15 years, only one of them uh, went uh, bankrupt uh, and, 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 and none of those other companies were liquidated. So, so our mistake rate you know, like comparable yeah. to, to what happened to us in 1989 with Edgecombe uh, is one-tenth of one percent mistake.
2: So, Steve, that, that's, that's fascinating on two levels. One is I think the lesson you're talking about is true in general about decision-making, whether it's a small business or a large business, that, you know, what you learn when you run any kind of business – The degree to which you make emotional decisions that you sort of don't pull back and look at the fact when I was, when I started the bookstore and I had come from a large accounting firm, I realized I better put together advisors because I could convince myself of anything, anything. And I was delusionally optimistic, right? And I think all of us, if you're doing that, so I loved that lesson about, okay, widen the net, you know, contextualize the facts. But the other thing it made me think about is this. So private equity has a good and a bad reputation, um, just like capitalism has a good and a bad reputation. So on the good side, when you do private equity right, you're investing money, you're giving them a chance to grow, you're bringing them the talent and the advisory, They employ more people. It adds to the economy. On the bad side, you get private equity firms who overburden a company with debt. People lose their jobs. Private equity owners make a lot of money, and it looks like it's just destructive. How do you respond? We know that you would defend the upside, and I'm with you on that. What's your response to the criticism of what private equity does? Now, Blackstone seemingly has a great success rate, So, but you see it in the world. What's your response to that criticism about private equity? Yeah, I, I'd
1: say a few things. Uh, first, it was more like that in the 1980s.
2: Than it uh, is now.
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, that was like early days. Yeah. Uh, and um, things could be bought very cheaply. Uh, uh, in the and 90- it
2: actually happens yeah. less now?
1: Oh, well, now the prices have gone up. And if all you're doing is, is trying to... not
2: going to work. It,
1: it, it, reducing costs. So, yeah. so one of the things that you said, which other people do, is, is talking about you know, sort of destroying companies or wrecking them or just you know, sort of being irresponsible. Uh, so, so part of the problem with that as a thesis uh, is, is that if you bought a company and made a mess of it, you're going to lose money. Yeah. And if you're going to lose money... Nobody would ever give you money again. Yeah. So the desire to do that uh, is is like almost non-existent. And the evidence is that there's a huge amount of money that's gone into private equity uh, over the last 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years. And is
2: that too much money chasing too few deals?
1: Leave that aside for the moment. Uh, I'll get to that. But the idea that people are putting money in to have companies wrecked so that when you buy them at one price, they're worth less at the end is nonsensical. And, and, And the evidence is that the money comes in because you actually do well. You don't do very well by just firing some people. Um, and then trying to sell the company at a lot higher price. Cut costs. And it, it doesn't turn them nobody over. Nobody will pay you much. the The model that works uh, is is to invest money to grow the company. The faster you grow it, the higher the PE multiple, price earnings yeah. multiple, and the more earnings there are. So it's a double benefit right. at the company
2: and, level and at the private at, equity at the, firm right. level.
1: Right. So so so. This idea of of buying companies to sort of make a mess of them is so nonsensical that it barely ever happens. Right. And and, and the reason the money keeps coming in is the returns are good because people are making the companies better. And so, in
2: fact, private equity, what are called alternative investment vehicles, yeah. have provided oh, much the higher. best returns over the last 20 years.
1: Right. And what's other counter to to that uh, those assertions, those negative assertions, is is the private equity business went through the global financial crisis, yeah. And unlike what people said was going to happen, all the bankruptcies and the rest of it, it didn't happen, hmm. right? In those companies, in those private equity companies. So, so for the people who were negative, they really have no response. To why didn't that happen, and it didn't happen because the companies were in better shape, and even if they had some borrowings on them, those borrowings were 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 scheduled to mature so many years out that, that they, they didn't
2: ma- force their hand.
1: They didn't force their hand, right? And so all the evidence is is that those negative things um, uh, s- seldom happen. Mm-hmm. Um, The the US economy uh, is a giant economy, biggest in the world, close to $20 trillion. That, um, interestingly, um, uh, about 21 million people in the United States get fired every year.
2: Yeah, I've heard you say that.
1: Right. And uh, the number of total people who work at private equity companies is somewhere around 8 million. Yeah. So even if 10% were fired, um and and the evidence is that on balance private equity companies grow employment as a whole so that if you, you if you looked at that that would be maximum of of a million people in one year but you're growing at the same time yeah. your other companies but
0: here's so it, so
1: so so what what that would mean is that the non private equity companies would be firing 20 million people a year and private equity, maybe a million, maybe. Yeah. So, so, but but, that's, but net, it would be firing no one because the rest of the economy. businesses, it, 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 these companies grow in years three, four, and five. So, so, so I look at this and say, you can always have an example of a company where things go wrong. But if you look at the whole US economy there are way 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 more firings and companies that go wrong than in private equity
2: but here here's the question that it inevitably raises the the economy over these last you know this is an unprecedented economic growth engine that we are experiencing but we're also experiencing the widest income gap or wealth concentration mm-hmm that we've seen since the turn of the 19th uh, century and and the question i think that everybody's grappling with and so for one mm-hmm. we know factually that when there's this this amount of inequality you get populism right because they want that they're they're left out of the engine they want they want some other answer it's that's considered a big driver to the outcome of the 2016 Election. So as somebody who's watched this, as somebody who's been as philanthropic as you have, you know, I think you and I would agree that the wealth tax is a very complicated tax to impose, even if it looks like a good solution. So what is the solution, Steve, to try to right. smooth out these gross inequities?
1: Yeah, I think um, um – there's a lot of things going on uh that that contribute to this the, you know I I call it less uh income inequality than income insufficiency mm-hmm. uh, for the bottom you could either say 25% 40% of uh in in this case it's americans but it's broader who are paycheck to paycheck yeah and and they they don't have savings so so how did that happen um well um, it happens because of absolute pay levels, and it happens because of uh, educational uh, preparation. Uh, so, so I, I think you start to to address these issues by uh, making sure that the people at the bottom obviously need more money. So, so you can get it in a variety of different ways, policy-wise. I, I think the best way to start uh, is to increase the minimum wage. Which which speaks to fifteen percent of the people mm-hmm. uh, in the country uh, by by double, uh, basically to to around fifteen dollars, assuming they're in a location that can stand that. You know, you yeah, can, it's some easier. places that's not going to work. Some places that's too too much. But still, uh, you have to increase that because you you have to have more income for for people at the bottom yeah. uh, of the economic uh, 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 pyramid, and and so. That not only hits the bottom fifteen percent, but there are lots of people who are between fifteen dollars a year and, and whatever the minimum wage is now. So what happens? That fifteen percent um, will force the people on top of them to get paid more, mm-hmm. and and so this will probably hit thirty-five to forty percent of the people uh, who are working, and 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 that starts a, a wealth transfer, uh, if you will. And the reason I like this, as opposed to other mechanisms, is that this is not just giving people money; it's it's yeah. providing the incentive to work uh, and and be better, uh, and and so this starts. Um, and, and also, people when you pay people more, they'll spend more because they have needs. Uh, they won't save more at the mm-hmm. start they'll spend more so that's good to keep the economy going as well so i think that's that's where you start i think secondly um part of the reason this has happened is not a failure of quote capitalism it's a failure of education uh and when when i was younger um back in the middle ages uh, we the same age <laughs> right uh, that that u.s public schools were well, either number one, two, or three in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're now somewhere between 25 and 30. And if you look at the testing on math, uh, we're in the 30s, probably around 33 or 34. Yeah. Now, you can't have your educational system not prepare uh, your society. But
2: that's been a stubborn problem for a long time.
1: Well, somebody ought to solve it because if you look at parochial schools—
0: they're are, doing it.
1: They have no problem solving so it. So why is if that? If you if you look at at private schools, they have no trouble solving it. If you look at charter schools, they have no trouble uh, solving it. And, you know, I'm active um, supporting uh, the, the Catholic school system in, in New York City. Uh, why do I do that? I'm not Catholic. Uh, it's just so amazing. They have uh, 90% of their kids are minorities. Um, 70% are at the poverty line or below. uh, And they they have
2: high graduation
1: rates. 98% graduation rates, but not fudging graduation. Mm -hmm. These are people actually educated. And 96% go to college. Now, you take that same skew of people and you put them in large urban environments and the opposite happens. So, So, you know, I'm... I'm I'm not the world's number one educational expert, but I know if you can do it in all kinds of other schools, systems with the same people, that we can make a huge change. So th- this is this is this is a passion of mine mm. because I know I want you to
2: solve this, right. Steve.
1: Well, I'm I'm not a, po- a political person. You'll I'm,
2: find number tens,
1: right? <laughs> but but I, I believe. That this can be solved because it, it these students these type of students are being educated in other systems with great success. Yeah. Uh, and.
2: But if, in smaller nuggets, in other words, if you look at the number of kids in Catholic schools about and 10%, charter schools, it's, so it's about, small.
1: Yeah, it's ten percent of the other systems, but but the same principles uh, ought you know, to scale. Should, can scale, and and so. I think – here's one example. Okay. I was in China uh, about two months ago. I was meeting with one of the top three people in their country. And you have a Rhodes-type
2: program, the Schwarzman Scholars right. in China.
1: But I wasn't there to talk to them about that. Oh, okay. And, and, and this, this individual was telling me that in China, um, they're, they're they're going to be mandating that every student in the country get training in computer science. Mm. In the U.S., the number of students who get training in computer science is like less than 5%. Mm. Now, imagine we have to compete with these people. Yeah. And when you're talking about why don't people make more uh, in, 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 in our economic system, this doesn't have to do with capitalism. I mean, China is going to be educating everybody in their country to be in the knowledge economy. We are choosing yeah. not to. So what do you think is going to happen to our people at the bottom of an economic scale? Uh, they're not going to be able to command the wages. They're not going to be able to take advantage of the opportunities. We have millions of jobs. Unfilled. Unfilled. No. And that's just to start. I hear that all the time. Just to start. It's going to it's gonna grow yeah. at a huge rate and our people will not be qualified. So we have to start at the at the beginning. If if you look at people our age um and and say would we be basically doing as well as we're doing however we're doing it, um, if if, if we didn't have the basic skills mm. to be successful in the economy as it has been, if you will. Over our lifetime, we wouldn't have been as successful.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I've spent a lot of years thinking about zero to three education, public school education, and I'm I'm urging you to be a be a factor in how this gets solved because I I agree with you. I think it is uh, the critical thing, and I'm a little frustrated because we're running out of time, and I want to get to two things quickly. One is you mentioned China um, uh, this administration has um, uh, looked for your assistance in trying to resolve the trade war between China and the United States. I think two and a half years ago, when this uh, was set out, I think there was a lot of agreement that China needed to you know get with the program to some degree, but This trade war is now um, dramatically, negatively impacting the global economy. Um, Do you think we went about it the wrong way? Do you think it'll get solved? Do you think it'll get solved in one big treaty? Do you think it's going to be like little steps? Where's that going to go? Because that feels so profoundly impactful on global economy.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's clearly, uh, resulted, uh, in, um, uh, sort of slowdown, uh, in the, in the global economy, particularly in manufacturing. There's almost no country in the world that isn't having manufacturing at lower and lower levels. Uh, and you know, these things are mutually reinforcing in a bad way. Sure. Uh, and, and so why, why did this happen? Uh, it, it happened because, um, um, Basically, the U.S. Uh, uh, asked China uh, to, to basically, uh, what's I guess what you would call it, harmonize uh, or make nice roughly roughly equivalent uh, the restrictions uh, to have uh, the countries uh, import and export uh, goods. In other words, if if the U.S. wants to sell a product into China, one can they do it? Right, uh, and 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 two, are there uh, 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 tariffs and taxes um, that are roughly equivalent if, uh, to Goods be the same in. if it comes the other way. So, so the way it works out currently uh, is on an average product, it costs someone in the U.S. about three times as much uh, to, um, export. Uh, to, to export as it does for China to send a good here. So, so a, a three to one disadvantage seems unfair. And the reason it seems unfair is it is unfair. And the reason that started was because uh, China was a developing country; they had GDP uh, per capita of a few hundred dollars forty years ago now per person. What, 10, now it's ten thousand. Now it's ten thousand, but the U.S. is around sixty-three thousand. So, so basically, the current administration uh, approached uh, uh, China and and said, "Can't we get?" closer together, because this just doesn't seem fair. China, meanwhile, had a variety of other things besides relatively closed markets. Um, they, um, you know, uh, had a lot of protective uh, aspects to their economy, uh, like the U.S. did in the 19th century.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The U.S. In, in, the 19, in the 1800s had very high tariff walls, oh, yeah. protections and we grew up and then we changed. So so we asked China to change a system where they were the most successful country growing in the world, maybe in world history over a 40 year period. Yeah. So when you ask somebody to change what they're doing and they're doing great, the normal mm-hmm. response is "We we sort of like it the way it is. Uh, and that's that's normal. But did it, we
2: use our leverage wrong in those negotiations to uh, make it more problematic?
1: I, I think that's easy to say but inaccurate, Be, because you know China. That's why chi- I asked the questions r- right, and you answered. <laughs> right, right, China, China, China's been around in its modern form uh, for seventy years, and nobody's done a trade agreement with them. So it didn't matter which U.S. Mm-hmm. president, which strategy. Yep, yep. Uh, and and so um so, so so this administration took this approach of, of of putting tariffs on them that that basically you know appears to be very disruptive because it is uh and um and the two countries have been have tried to do a deal um of a certain type that the Americans defined, it was too ambitious uh, for the Chinese, and so th- those discussions have failed. Uh, uh, in the good news category, good. Uh, in the good news, uh, this has all gotten so difficult for both countries as well as um, uh, the em- uh, emerging markets, countries, and Europe, that the whole oh, yeah. world is like sort of, uh, in in. Suffering, And I think the two countries themselves are now in a point, U.S. and China, uh, where they're willing to do things to resolve this.
2: I hope you're right.
1: I, I, I think I am right. Yeah. Uh, well, and, you're
2: the ones talking to them. Right, so if you're positive, then I'm, right. I'm going so, so, with you. So,
1: so I think there, there's a deadline right now uh, where President Trump and President Xi are going to be meeting in uh, uh, Chile uh, as part of some global meetings. Uh, and the two countries are um, going to try and and have their first deal done by that date. And you're and hopeful. I, I am. I am. Uh, I have reason to be uh, hopeful about okay. that. And and that that deal. The won't, stock
2: market could go up just on this conversation.
1: Uh, <laughs> that, um, um, that 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 will then be a, like a second deal, mm-hmm. uh, which will have so more it'll be stuff incremental. In, yeah. And and so I think the uh, atmosphere uh, actually has
2: changed. Because it's gotten so bad. Exactly. Yeah. So, Steve, there's a lot of topics we haven't gotten to that are in uh, the book. And I want to urge our listeners, if you're building a business or thinking about business or coming out of school or in school, it, it – um, You just had something for everyone. I I really thoroughly enjoyed um, the book. And I want to close with this question because it very much struck me, and it was reminiscent of a conversation that I had had with my dad. When you were like some whippersnapper age, like 12 or 13 or 14, you explained to your father, who had a perfectly lovely, legitimate business, that... It could be, you didn't use those words then, but you envisioned that it could be what is the bed, bath, and beyond of now. And you explained to him how he could do it. And he was worried about people would take from the cash register. You couldn't do it. But at the end of the day, your dad's answer to you was, you know what, Steve? I'm perfectly happy. I don't I don't need to grow Schwarzman linens into some juggernaut. And so the question I would ask you, reading this book, I would assume you too are a happy uh, man. And so how would you characterize the difference or the similarities of your happiness and your dad's happiness having taken very dramatically different paths to that happiness?
1: Yeah, I'd say people are not identical. Uh, People have different visions of what a good life is. Uh, people have um uh, different um comfort zones uh emotionally um and and people have different types uh of talents and needs uh and um you know some people are you know very happy uh you know playing uh uh sports uh on a social level uh and you know um I was with uh, Derek Jeter uh, yesterday. Oh, the little Uh, baseball player? Uh, Right. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, he played baseball on a different level. Uh, You know, part of it's talent, part of it's drive. Uh, I've learned that people uh, can be uh, successful uh, on their own terms at at any level of, you know, external success. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's to be respected. Uh, you know, uh, I was different than my dad, but I love my dad, uh and he was smarter than me he He just didn't want to do what I he knew. Had different needs yeah, right he he didn't want to do what I could see uh i I like doing difficult things, and I like creating, and he liked maintaining uh these are all mm-hmm. worthy yeah. uh, values and and you know he Raised a lovely family, and and as he said, he said, "Steve, look, you know, um, I've got two cars, I, I, I've I've got a house, put, put uh, my kids through college. I could put my kids through college. That's all I need mm-hmm. from from an economic context. I, I don't I don't care about more and." I, I I just approach things differently. I love building new things, creating them, and 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 making change and so forth. Th- these are oddities of personality, yeah. Uh, and you just accept those, and you love people, uh, and respect them, you know, for for their own lives and how they choose mm-hmm. to live them, as long as they're moral, uh, and you know they're happy. Uh, and and they make a positive contribution uh, to to their families and to their communities. People are not to be judged.
2: Yeah. Okay. With that, Mr. Schwartzman, I want to really thank you uh, for taking the time to come into the studio and and have this conversation and congratulate you on entering my world, the book world. Well, what I'd say <laughs>
1: in, in closing is that people have told me the book's very funny. It uh, is. And and inspirational and teaches them a lot of things. Uh, and it's a fast read. Some people yeah. sit down and just and sort of— In
2: one sitting. One sitting and read it. it. Yeah.
1: And, and so I'd encourage you. i I'm people... going to say
2: good job, Steve.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad it's over. It's not over for you. You yeah. have to sell it.
2: Yeah. But... All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by LitHub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.